This is John chapter one, beginning in verse six. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of, our, of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is or the Lord. Again, not a classic Christmas text. Uh, the, the passages that are being read here focus on one character, namely John the Baptist. For those of you that have been very well churched, you know a few things about John the Baptist. Perhaps you know that he was clothed in camel hair and wore a leather belt. Perhaps that you know he ate wild locust and honey. Perhaps, for those of you that know me, know that I dressed up as John the Baptist for Halloween one year and wore a fur pelt and went to my grandmother's house. <laughs> You'd have to know me very well to know that little tidbit. But again, that takes me back to my childhood. I was reliving some of my childhood as well, and mom's not here so I can put her on blast, if you will. Um, and I've told some of you this already, but this helps to put the John the Baptist in context. Whenever I would watch TV as a kid, we'd be watching shows and sometimes a profan profanity would, would take place. And my mother would say, bad word. And then she'd look over at Erica and I and we'd say, bad word. <laughs> that was ingrained into my mind. And I think my mom is a little bit to blame for my immense vocabulary of all the things that I shouldn't say at the opportune moments. Um, but I'm certainly to blame for letting them come out of my mouth. Uh, there was also moments whenever something was inappropriate on the TV, mom would have like this house coat and she'd run up to the TV and then spread it open and like barricade us from seeing what was going on and she'd turn around and say, this is bad. <laughs> this is bad. Got it. Don't know what's happening, but I'm sure of it, mother. Um, there's certain things that, that we know about John the Baptist. There's cer certain things that scholars know about John the Baptist as well. And to put this in context, um, scholars fight and argue pretty much about everything that there is to fight and argue about. But at least this much is, is pretty well established for the person of John the Baptist and puts into context the message that we just read uh, in the first few verses of the book of John. This is N.T. Wright. He says, John was clearly a figure of some importance and notoriety in the late 20s of the first century, a well-known, puzzling, and disturbing phenomenon. He was an oracular prophet in that he was announcing oracles of woe upon Israel if she did not repent. John announced imminent judgment on the nation of Israel and urged her to repent, warning that her status as Yahweh's covenant people would not be enough by itself to deliver her from the coming disaster. 
What John the Baptist was doing is he was blending politics and religion. The complete and utter no-no of any barroom chat was coming to focus, and, and John was taking both of those into his actions in the, the, the Jordan River. He was making a political statement because he was, in a sense, building a community of people. He was also building a community of people that had a certain level of disdain for the Roman government. This was looked upon as a very scary, perhaps threatening uh, moment as Herod Antipas looked out and saw what John was doing, which ultimately leads to John the Baptist's death, where his head is removed from his body and served on a platter. He's also bringing religion into focus because what he's doing is very um, subtle, but very forceful. Anyone collecting people in the Jordan wilderness was symbolically saying, this is the new exodus. Dipping back into Israel's past and that moment of a release from oppression, a release from captivity into freedom, John the Baptist was signaling something similar is happening right now. Come and be baptized in this river to symbolize this. Continues, anybody offering water baptism for the forgiveness of sins was saying, you can have here and now what you would normally get through the temple. Basically, this idea in, in the Jewish mindset was God lives in the temple. That's why when the temple is destroyed, it's so life-altering for them. God's very presence is confined to this space. This is where they go to have communion with him. This is where they go to receive revelation from him perhaps. This is where they go to have their sins atoned for because this is where God is. In the Old Testament, we see imagery of God leaving the temple and how terrible that is. And what John is saying here in this, in this act of baptism, you don't need to be there. God is where we are outside of the temple courts. Anybody inviting those who wished to do so to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins to pass through an initiatory rite of this kind was symbolically saying, here is the true Israel that is to be vindicated by Yahweh, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the uppity-ups of the Jewish religion, not those people. It's here in the desert getting baptized in the Jordan by a weird, radical dude wearing camel hair, a leather belt, and popping locusts. It's a strange sight. But what John is doing is he's forming, in a sense, a, a group of radical people who were very politically savvy and also subtly indicting the religion of their time. I want to pause there for a second and step into our world and just think about how tame we have become to think about how tame we as Christians have been when really the, the bulk of our activity is reduced to is Calvinism the real deal or is Arminianism the real deal? Is this minute piece of doctrine go this way or that way? And we've lost our voice in the temple square where we can take politics and religion and have those not be the taboo things of our day but actually have a voice and subtly subvert the status quo. What John was doing was he was creating a renewal movement. All throughout Jewish history, they have been looking forward to when this big thing would happen. 
when God would rend the heavens and come down, as we learned about a couple weeks ago, when God would show up in a big way to get rid of oppression once and for all, to allow people to walk in ways of justice. They were waiting for this to happen. And John was, in a sense, announcing that it actually was happening, but John knew that his role was preparatory. It was not John's show. John was the beginning point of this whole thing that God was orchestrating that would culminate in, in John, the one whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. At that moment, not who it was, but knowing that he was the one that was not the light, but that was testifying to the light. John ultimately was a witness. It says in the passage that we're studying specifically tonight, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light. The book of John is structured in this um, presentation of witnesses who testify to Jesus through the revelation of God through his son. And this witness to testify to the light was so that all might believe through him. And as we'll see, there's another um, point in the book of John to bring people to know who this is. But before they can know him, his testimony must be sound. So throughout the book, we see all these different things throughout that testify to the light. And, and let me just, for the over 30 crowd that was raised in the church, that CCM Savvy, every time I say testify, I just want to launch into the point of grace. Testify to love. Who is it? Okay, Avalon. Thank you, Laura. Okay, God the Father is testifying to Jesus. Jesus himself is testifying. The Holy Spirit is testifying. The works of Jesus. There's a couple of different instances where he says, if you don't believe me, believe the works. They're right here in front of your face. There's nothing that you can say or do about them. What has happened has been clear to you. Believe the works if you don't believe the things that are coming out of my mouth. The scriptures testify to Jesus. The disciples testify to Jesus. The disciple whom Jesus loved, which I love it in the book of John, the author refers to himself as none other than the disciple whom Jesus loved. That guy's very subtle in his, and the rest of you stink. I'm the one that Jesus loved. He also throws in a tidbit at the end where they're running to the tomb. I believe it's, it's the disciple who Jesus loved and, and Peter. And the disciple whom Jesus loved throws in this little tidbit where Peter was way ahead, but then I outran him and showed up first. <laughs> and it's in scripture. That's awesome. Okay, but all these different things are, are testifying about the person and work of Jesus and lending credence to who he is. Remember, this book is written in the afterglow of the death and resurrection of Christ. Some would date it uh, some time afterwards, uh, perhaps 30 to, some people would even date it farther than that, 30 years plus. But he's trying to, to do this one thing, and, and the, the end of the book testifies to it. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the miracles, the signs, the, the people that have been testifying, they are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. This is a very different way of evangelism than the way it's perhaps portrayed in, in our era. But here we see John 
uh, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, attempting to get people to understand who Jesus is and not just leave it there at a cognitive level, but actually take that uh, into their hearts and begin to be transformed by it. The way that they live would also be a testament to who Jesus is in their own day. The question that they begin to raise for John specifically is, who are you? Remember, this group had been sent out from the religious leaders of the time just to try to get a, a, a handle on who this person was and what he was doing and perhaps how dangerous he was, what kind of a coup he was raising. If this is something that we needed to be concerned about or if this is just something that was a flash in the pan. They say, who are you? Are you the Christ? They don't ask this, but John could even uh, sense that this was the idea of where they were going because in Jewish culture, they were waiting for the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one who was anointed by God to reign and to rule, to show up and put an end once and for all to oppression. The one who would initiate this kingdom movement where no longer is Israel under the thumb of fill in the blank with the national oppressor of the time but God would begin to bring it about the age to come. The fancy theological term for this, as we all know by now, is inaugurated eschatology. That person would bring in the kingdom and we would live in light of the kingdom and have that tension of the already and the not yet. We're already there, but we're not quite there yet. This was something that, that Jesus would do, but John emphatically says, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one that you guys are waiting for. I am not the Messiah. I am not the anointed one. I am not the one who's going to bring this about. I am testifying to that person. I don't know who it is yet, but they're gonna show up, and it's gonna be pretty stinking awesome. They continue, are you Elijah? In the Jewish mindset, again, this dips back into Old Testament prophecy, they were expecting Elijah to show up. Remember, in the narrative of the Old Testament, Elijah does not die. He is taken up in a chariot of fire, which I think would be pretty cool. I don't know where the chariot ended up, but in the narrative, it just, he's there, and then he's not, and Elisha's like, what happened? And this goes back to uh, the book of Malachi. It says, see the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And don't we, don't we often think about that, just going out leaping? I look like a calf from a stall. And you shall tread down the, the, the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teachings of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. This day of the Lord here at the end, that's what they were waiting for. God's gonna show up for the, for the people that were repentant and faithful, it was gonna be a great day. And for the people that were not, it was going to be a bad day. But Elijah was going to be the one who symbolized this is actually happening. So when they see John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing people and proclaiming forgiveness of sins and proclaiming this, this political and religious movement, they started to say, wait a second, 
are you Elijah? You look pretty weird. Elijah was pretty weird. You're wearing hairy clothes. Elijah wore hairy clothes. You like to eat locusts. I don't know if Elijah liked to eat locusts, but you could assume maybe he did, perchance. Um, the, the, the passage there continues on, but for John the Baptist, I'm not that guy. Another question was raised, are you the prophet? For us, we might have no concept of who that is, but in that moment, no one had to clarify which prophet. Isaiah, Ezekiel, like who are you talking about? Which prophet? Everyone knew because again, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is is Moses saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. They were waiting for these people to show up. The Messiah, Elijah, a prophet like Moses. All of these people would have symbolized the end of time, the moment when God was on the move and things were actually going to start happening. John the Baptist replies, I am none of these people. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, for John, he's saying, I am the forerunner. I'm not the guy. I'm the guy before the guy. He's saying, um, I am baptized with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, the one who's coming after me. I'm not unworthy to untie his sandal. He's actually gonna baptize you with the spirit. I baptize you with water, and we go through purification rituals, and we go through these things that are symbolic, and they mean something to us, but there's gonna be one who shows up later. And when he does, it's gonna change everything. This renewal movement was preparation for how the world was gonna be turned on its head through what Jesus was about to do. In this passage, three things are very, very, very clear. There's a sense of expectancy amongst the people. Something is broken, it needs to be fixed, and God needs to show up to do it. And the people were joining John out in the wilderness this crazy person, and they were buying into it because they were all waiting for God to do what God had promised he was going to do. There was also this, this, this witnessing that was happening where John was saying, I'm not the guy, but I'm witnessing or I'm testifying to the guy. It's going to happen. There's this expectancy, but it's also we are actually being a testament to him. We are, through our lives and through our actions, we are putting him into context. And in that, we participate in this end of days, expectant, hopeful moment where God will work and will show up. 2,000 years later, we live on the other side of this story. We see John's work. We know what happens to John. He does incite this political movement, ultimately sacrifices his life for it. And at times, he begins to doubt who Jesus is. Remember, while John is in prison, he starts sending out messages saying, is Jesus really the guy? Did I have it all right? Or is this just another hoax? We see John in the midst of of difficulty, but we also understand that what John is doing is beautiful. And as, as the author, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved would say, everything that he said was true and trustworthy. 
So Jesus lives his life sinless. He sacrifices himself for sins. He raises, is raised from the dead, defeats sin, defeats death. We live on the other side of that testament. We see how John played a role in that whole story. And now it, be, it comes time for us to begin to ask our questions. What is our expectancy? Are we living in the same sort of end of days? I'm not trying to get all crazy on us here, but this, this Advent season is a, is a season of waiting, expecting, not just Jesus to, to show up finally climactically, but perhaps for Jesus to show up in your very life right now. For Jesus to show up in the midst of your family, for Jesus to show up in the midst of your unrest at home, for Jesus to show up in the midst of the unrest of your own hearts, the doubt that pervades every thought that you have, for Jesus to show up in the midst of that. Are we going, in a sense, to the desert? Are we buying in to this idea that the king of the universe is on the move and we get to be a part of it? What is our witness? John comes to testify to the light and we as Christians are tasked with this, uh, the, this job to be ambassadors of Christ, to be his hands and his feet. And those are kind of Christian-y things that we say, but when we look at our lives, what are we testifying to? What are we witnessing to? Now, I don't mean that when we go to Walmart, are we wearing such a smile that people say, what's different about you? Oh, I love Jesus, of course. That conversation has never happened to me in my life and I doubt it will ever happen to me in my lifetime and that's okay. But does the, the, the thoughts that we have and the way that we are selfless and the way that we forgive and the way that we're, we show mercy because we have received mercy and the way that we show love because we have received love, does that testify to Jesus? Are we living in light of that story and are we holding candles to the light of the world. What about our participation? I found it really strange that this was the text that we were reading on the day that we were having a baptism. We see these crazy Jewish people showing up in the middle of the, in the, middle of the wilderness, getting baptized to participate with their folks because they understood and expected God to be on the move. For us, baptism is kind of similar. We're expectant that Jesus is going to be on the move. We've given ourselves over to him. We're allowing him to take, to take us and to mold us and to shape us and to break us and to put us back together. We're allowing him to be king and we're participating with him through things like communion and baptism but even beyond that, in our very lives. I think that we could pause here and, and just reflect on those, those three issues about our expectancy and our witness and our participation and wonder if they match up or if yet again we have proven ourselves to be self-absorbed, self-centered, not motivated by the things of Christ and only wanting a cheap way out. I hope and I pray that we become the radical, crazy people that show up in the middle of nowhere to start a movement. 
And I hope that movement that we start is founded upon the death and resurrection of Christ. And I hope that our belief in that transforms us from the very inside out so that people can see a difference in us, not because we have a cheap smile on our face when we're in Walmart, but because we fight for justice and because we forgive people when they're unforgivable, because we are agents of mercy and grace and reconciliation. When that transformation takes place, I'm certain that it will have an impact in our world, and I'm certain that we will be testifying to Christ in the midst of it.